loud and clear. You're right. Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? I actually thought about going to the lane just to have a look around and pick up your book. Cat Lucas is here to talk about Tottenham from the lane. The story of Spurs in N17. Very interesting you put the postcode in the title because this is almost the story of the postcode. It is, yeah. And it's... um. I think it's the only. I might be wrong here because a lot of a lot of books kind of draw on similar themes, but it's the the only kind of specifically local history. It is the story of the of Harringay and Tottenham as as much as of the football club, and they're they're kind of interchangeable with with one another, I suppose. There are two stadiums on White Hart Lane. I went to Harringay, Harringay. Mm. I never know how to pronounce it, but I went there for the. Uh, Kanifa World Cup and I remember walking from uh, the Haringey Borough Stadium which is lovely to the lane because at the time this was 20, uh, 2018 so the stadium wasn't yeah. finished then yeah that would have been um, yeah during the quite long delays <laughs> that would have been so um, yeah I think twenty. so 2018 would have been the start of the 2018 to 19 season was obviously when it was supposed to to be finished, but then there were delays and, and even things to do with um, you know, Brexit and they were sort of oh, the the costs were suddenly complicated and all sorts of factors for the delays. But obviously, ultimately, it, now it's here. It's arguably the best stadium in the world, um, and it's the the benchmark. And it's it's so different to any other ground in the Premier League, um, and, and particularly because it's the only. The only stadium in, in the Premier League which is still on the high street of its community, so it's right in the middle. You know, a lot of them now, especially the new ones, have kind of been sort of shunted out. To, they're not always even in the town. So, um, you know, it's important. It's, it's a really important that it's been kept there. But, um, yeah, as you say, it was uh, slightly, slightly delayed. But it's here... And all the PR that it got, David Aronovich wrote this encomium in the Times, his beloved Spurs in this stadium. Uh, And I'm sure we'll mention the very long bar, but we'll try to make it more than just that. The stadium looks brilliant. It's better than Wembley, better than Arsenal, better than the new Anfield. And it is on the cover of this book, Tottenham from the Lane, along with, I I recognise the body shape of Jimmy Greaves, but I'm not 100% sure it's him. Yes, it is, yeah. And Paul Gascoigne as well, from when he was at Spurs. Uh, tremendously sad because we knew Jim was ill. I've spoken to Uncle Norman Giller um, in the the library who's written more books than you have about Spurs, three or four. And yes, very sad. Um, But the outpouring of emotion for Greaves. um, He is the greatest striker England has ever produced. Did you ever hear accounts of him playing? Yeah, I think anyone at Tottenham, because he's synonymous with that era and obviously he he signed for Spurs in 1962 so actually a year after the double but if anything he's kind of still synonymous with the the whole of the 60s really even though he came slightly after the biggest season yeah I think for an entire generation which is uh, slightly older than me he he was the the star attraction he's what people used to to go and see and and I, I think one of the things that a lot of people have said particularly in the last few weeks on the topic of Jimmy Greaves is that they would often go and he hadn't really done a lot all game and then they would come out at the end and he'd scored two goals and had you know got an assist as well and they said he had this kind of brilliant nonchalance about him and the way that he played 
Whereas actually, if you if you watch him over the ninety minutes, you know, I don't know what people would make of him now <laughs> because there's so much more of this kind of obsession with you know statistics and and that sort of thing. But um, yeah, absolutely for for the nineteen sixties and and obviously everything he achieved after that. You know, nineteen sixty two, he was part of the Spurs side, obviously that won the FA Cup again in sixty seven. So yeah, I, I, I think in my opinion, England's greatest ever. And I spoke to Brian Barwick last week. And uh, he was part of the mission to get a World Cup medal to Jimmy Greaves because he had most things in his trophy cabinet, but not an, uh, not a World Cup winner's medal. And so Barwick and the FA helped him out. Where are all Greaves' medals going to go? I know, unfortunately, didn't he have to sell some of them? I believe so, yeah. I think so. There's a there's a, an organisation called the um, Tottenham Tribute Trust and they... They've been fantastic with, uh, not not just Jimmy, but a lot of the former players. So I'm I'm not absolutely 100 percent on the on the topic of medals, but I think they would um, they would have something to do with all his kind of memorabilia sure. and things that he things that he won. I didn't know that at all. I know don't Spurs have a museum in the new by the new shop? Yeah, so it's not open yet. Actually, unfortunately, it's um, I suppose like most things because of COVID, it's a couple of years behind because obviously you know that everything was sort of put on hold but um yeah so the old white hart lane they had a uh, they had a kind of a legends bar and then there was basically just kind of a tiny bit with a few you know old cups and little little bits of uh, memorabilia and things like that so there i think the idea is to have something a lot more all encompassing at the Tottenham Hotspur stadium and hopefully i think the plan is to, to sort of give a bit more of a feel for the, the story of the club as well. So I think you can kind of go in and, and there will be bits, as, as in the book, you know, it starts in 1882 and you kind of get the feel for all the way through to you know, White Hart Lane and then, and then the new stadium as well. I remember walking down Bill Nicholson Way. We're here to talk about you and your Spurs fans, but I'll allow myself just to mention that my dad took us to Spurs, not to Watford, because the football was better. Ha, 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 ha. And so we went... 98, 99, 2000, 2001, And then he was captain of a golf club, so we didn't go so much. But I call it the Goran Bunjevcevic era. Do you have fond memories of kind of the fag end of the Alan Sugar era or not? Um, I have fond memories of the mending, I suppose you could put it that way. Um, I suppose it's an odd one because not not to, to be too hard on, on Nuno and, and what's happening at the moment with the club, but that era... The Bunyanchevich era, if you like, if you like, there was such a you, you had no idea what was going to happen week to week, and they still there was still that element of entertainment, which is a funny thing with Spurs and Spurs fans always pride themselves on you know it doesn't matter what you win, but the idea is you every other week you go and you expect ninety minutes of entertainment, and I think I suppose that's the the most difficult thing at the moment is that it's kind of neither one nor the other, I suppose. And we are, we are talking just before Tottenham-Manchester United. Uh, we're talking on the 29th. This won't go out for another month. Hopefully, uh, NES will still be in the job. But as long as, as long as the bottom line isn't affected. I was at the famous game where we all applauded Tottenham Hotspur off because they went 3-0 up against Manchester United. Were you there? I was not, no, thankfully. Um, and then, obviously, the famous lads, it's Tottenham comment from Alex Oh, hang Ferguson. on. I must, I must pick you up on this. I did some research about this. wasn't that game. It was another game. But they've been conflated in people's minds. Oh. Well, funnily enough, there's been more than one 
I think there was only one where Spurs were three nil up, but there's at least another sort of two or three where they went two nil up against United and and ended up, you know, I think four two five two. So they made a bit of a habit of it actually <laughs> for quite a few years. Entertaining, really entertaining. It's like they wanted to impress Alan Sugar because he knew he knows that a lot of business mates will have been Man U fans. Um, yeah. But yeah, no one can predict what goes on because a year ago it was six one which was, it's almost incredible with Mourinho in charge of Spurs. But Spurs are one of the top six clubs. And this stadium that you've written a book about um, is, uh, is one of the reasons why. I mean, another reason is Joe Lewis, whom I wanted to spend a few minutes on because he doesn't give interviews. Dan Levy is Daniel Levy's kind of his representative on earth. But are Spurs fans going to turn on Joe Lewis? Well, I think the point about that is that he's perhaps quite cleverly, he does have Daniel Levy kind of as the physical face of Enoch at Spurs. So Joe Lewis is far away in, in the Bahamas um, and he's only been, t- been seen at Spurs a, a few times, even though they you know took over 20 years ago. He was there at the um, when the stadium opened against Palace. That was, uh, I think, the last time he was there. So little was known about him, whereas Daniel Levy, I think, is the Enoch and the face of Spurs as well so I think Daniel Levy tends to get a lot of the heat when perhaps he, it's not like Daniel Levy is kind of out on his own he, he makes the footballing decisions but obviously a lot of the business decisions are also involving Joe Lewis and, and the wider board as well so I, I think there, there's this kind of in fact you mentioned the Spurs Man United game I know that there's I think there's an organisation of, uh, of fans who are going to be outside again protesting against Enix ownership um, and that's been a, a feature, basically, of quite a few games this season and sort of tail end of last season as well. Um, and it's, it's not just about the Super League. Obviously, that was when football fans as a whole, and you, know, you saw them at all the big six clubs, uh, you saw you know things going on outside the stadium and things like that. But at Tottenham, it's a wider discontent, I suppose. And it, it dates back to 2019. And even before that, you know, when Spurs were in a Champions League final, before that, they were in two title races and... They then went, they had that two years where they didn't sign anybody. They then, when they have signed people, where's the money gone? You know, they haven't invested particularly wisely at all. Um, and obviously the, the results on the pitch have kind of followed as you'd expect. And from going from sort of four, three, four years ago being in the top four and beyond, the top six, I suppose, now would be what they're aspiring to. And I think people obviously make the connection between the two. I would like to posit a figure who defines the modern face of Tottenham Hotspur. I remember reading about Taxi for Mycon. I think I was in Edinburgh at the time studying. And Harry Redknapp was uh, super manager at at Spurs, the right manager for the right club. Uh, And then Gareth Bale came back last season on loan. An astonishing amount of money. I don't know how many Harry Winkses made up or made up or Tangangas made up a bale. That seemed like what United have done with Ronaldo this year to pacify some fans. Did it work? I mean, a great stadium to put him in, but no one could see him. Yeah, I think it was unfortunate. I, I think that's one thing that Spurs have, and Daniel Levy has been unfortunate in the, the timing of all this, you know, that you've, you've opened this stadium. And this will actually, well, hopefully, unless, you know, there's another lockdown, they're it ought to be the first season when you've got fans in. So there is an element of misfortune there. But with the bail thing, it, it undoubtedly gave people a lift in the same way as, like you say, with United and Ronaldo. I think with Bale, it, again, it was, it was that kind of misguided 
nostalgia. And I think that was perhaps what inspired the move as opposed to because, you know, Mourinho didn't play him for the first few months. So it's not that he'd asked for him and thought, yeah, this is someone who's going to fit into the system that we have. It was, he's available, he's willing to come back. It will be on loan for a year. So I think it it was quite a, a short-lived boost. You know, I think I remember actually being in Tottenham on the day that he signed, and yeah, there was this amazing buzz and this excitement to see him again. But ultimately, as well, it, it wasn't what Spurs needed at that time. You know, if you'd have pinpointed anywhere on the pitch, I don't think anyone was looking and thinking, "Oh, yeah, we need Bale." It was just, I think, yeah, the, the nostalgia perhaps took over slightly. But obviously, he did he did well once he did get his opportunities. But it's just. Um, Unfortunately, it, it all came to an end, and now it's almost like it, like it never happened. Indeed, yeah, let's brush it under. And nostalgia is the key word. In the five years I spent going to Tottenham, especially I remember two horrible losses against Birmingham in the League Cup, which I think it was 3-0 at half-time. That, I think that had made the decision that maybe Spurs were not the right club to support. And then 20 years ago to Cardiff, were you at the Worthington Cup final against Blackburn? No, I, I wasn't actually. Um, no, I was at the later one, the, the 2008, but yeah, no, not, not that one. Yeah. Um, Rained all the way there, all the way back, and it was so bad I thought Robbie Savage played for Blackburn for at least 10 years when he didn't. It was uh, Cole <laughs> Janssen and Berg and Mark Hughes was, I think, player manager. But yes, nostalgia features heavily, and that's why there is a whole cottage industry of books about Spurs. The aforementioned Norman Giller. I also have had Adam Powley... Uh, the teacher, Adam Powley, and Martin Cloak, who is heavily involved in the trust or the supporters trust um, in here, who have both been involved in, well, Adam helped me, help put me in touch with Steve Perryman, who is going to help me out talking about the Youth Cup. But Perryman is is one of the epochal figures. He must have played hundreds of times in N17. You have written the story of Spurs in N17. Did you get first-person recollections? Did you talk to certain players? Yeah, so I think part of it was we were we were trying to recollect um, eras not only from the players' perspective, but a lot of um, what features quite heavily is in the, the bit on the double. I've managed to speak to the families of some of our double winners who are unfortunately aren't, aren't with us now. Um, and to be honest, that was one of the, the motivations for the book because there are a lot of elements of this story which are unfortunately being lost, particularly because you know people joke about it, but it was so long ago that Spurs you know, won the league. There are fewer and fewer people who can kind of recount what it was like. So yeah, there's, there's a bit of everything in there. Yeah, a lot of a lot of former players have, have been very helpful with sort of discussing what it was like particularly you know the old the old white hart lane it was a lovely stadium again it was just off the high street and we used to sit in the west upper please don't judge um (laughs) but we were a few rows in front of david beckham's grandpa Uh, i never met him but i knew he was there and yeah the era of bill nick uh, bill nicholson way i would trot down i'd buy one of those incredibly sugary lollies in the shape of a spurs crest buy a programme, hear the woman behind go, come on, Ledley. So that's that's what I remember most about Spurs. I remember very few games, apart from the 7-2 Stephen Everson hat-trick against Ipswich oh, in 2000. Yep. Yep, my friend was a mascot then. And it's a great, it was a great arena. Do you mention the Y word in your book, which features... Um, certainly I remember it reverberating around the ground. I didn't even know what it meant. I thought they were saying youths. 
it's difficult, isn't it? Because I think, I, I wonder how many people that's the case for, actually, you know, people who attend Spurs and perhaps have never heard that word in any other context. Well, you know, fortunately, it's it's something that is, is hopefully used less and less. Um, I think it, it does discuss in the book um, not only, uh, you know, Spurs links with the Jewish community, um, uh, particularly sort of post-World War One. Um, and and also you know elsewhere in London and um, and at Arsenal as well and West Ham who also have um, who have uh, you know large Jewish followings as well as Spurs, but there there are elements of that. There's an incident actually called the the Tottenham outrage where there was um, two Latvian immigrants actually involved in in an incident with the police, and it just added to this sense of kind of completely out of proportion xenophobia. Yeah, in, in Tottenham, and it, it, one of the things it mentions in the book is that it was it was actually quite a small instance. So there was a there was an armed robber uh, and, and his his mate, and they they come along, and there was a, a police chase, and unfortunately one one of the police was was shot dead, and an, and another bystander. So it, it was a you know it was an awful incident, but it, the amount of interest it provoked at kind of national level was quite unusual for the scheme of things, if that makes sense. Yeah. And, and it fed into this kind of hysteria. There was sort of literal Russia in Tottenham, so there's a you know little um, which until quite recently actually there was quite a large um, you know Russian community and then the Jewish community as well. So yeah, it's something that I think is still synonymous with Spurs, as you say, even if you would attend a game now. But I I wonder yeah if it's kind of lost its context because initially when you had anti-Semitism at, at matches. Obviously, Spurs have a lot of non-Jewish fans as well, and it was always that element of togetherness, and that's where why it became such a, a common chant. Yeah, reclaiming the word as a slur. Yeah, yeah. yeah so it, it, it's used, and um, you know, when you go to, to to Tottenham, you hear it used in a as a positive word about you know your own players, your own fans. Um, obviously, it's it's complicated because people have different feelings about that, and some people think that you know it shouldn't be used in that way at all. But yeah, I think it's it's definitely used as a, a way of reclaiming it and not allowing it to be used as a slur. Some, I'm sure there are social historians who have tracked the patterns of migration in North London. My grandpa had a shop in N20, is that Wood Green, and then moved oh, yeah. moved around to Stanmore, which is. That's North London Central, Stanmore. Where are you? Are you in North East London? Uh, so I was. No, I'm, I'm actually in South London now. But, Ooh. Um, yeah, sort of family history is kind of all, all North London. Yeah. But nowadays, as I did in 2018, you walk down the lane and there's shops mm. of every kind. There's the Jamaican influence and the Eastern European, Polish bit. It is as multi-ethnic as better Londoners can be. Did you speak to the Tottenham supporting member of parliament for the book? Uh, no, actually. Um, but he is he is mentioned in it, actually, because he's been such a, an influential figure over the last sort of, well, 15 years, I think, when he was elected. Um, and particularly, obviously, what happened in 2011 with the civil unrest as well. Yeah. And David Lammy's done such a fantastic job of championing the area. And he's actually, I think he's one of the few MPs that you'll find who still is, you know, was born in the area, lives in the area now and has that link to the community. It's his own community, whereas now, obviously, you get MPs who kind of, they go to wherever they're... they're the safe seats, yeah, yeah, where the jobs are. Yeah, exactly, whereas David Lammy has done a fantastic job, and both for Spurs, but also, you know, he's there's an element of when, when Spurs considered 
moving away um, to, to East London, he did a, a fantastic job on behalf of the area, you know, saying either this can't be allowed to happen or if it does, you know, he even discussed things like what happens to the name, you know, do you still call them Tottenham Hotspur if they're playing in East London? You know, so he's done a fantastic job, David Lammy. And like you say, it's, it's fantastic that he also is, is such a well-publicised Spurs fan as well. There's a really good chat. Um, I think it's Amy Raphael who's kind of the invigilator, but it's Lammy and Eric Dyer between them. Mm-hmm. And Dyer is showing off his political knowledge and Lammy wants to talk Spurs. And that's, that's wonderful. Spurs still have that. Obviously, Dyer spent a lot of time in Portugal but they bring players through, certainly in the last 10 years, with the great Pochettino, who I guess in your lifetime is the best Tottenham manager for Spurs. Absolutely, yeah. Because no one else has got to the European Cup final. I was working for a well-known uh, European football organisation. I won't name it, but I was working during finals week. And for the match blogs that I was in charge of uploading stuff in, I actually uploaded a lot of uh, Pochettino's collaboration with Guillaume Balaguer, um, which is behind me. I've forgotten the name of the book. Is it the dream? Oh, Brave New World. Brave, thank you. Brave New World. Um, have you read that? Is that on your shelves? It is. Yeah, it's um, it's an interesting one. It's a it's a funny time in the Pochettino era because there's the, you know that little snippet of Wembley, uh, you know, the Champions League games and the difficult. The the one thing that comes up really well from the book is how much Levy and Pochettino respect one another. Yeah, I mean, it, it's an odd one because I think they still do. Obviously, it, it all ended in tears, as it typically does. But I, th- I think now even there's that, that mutual respect, you know, two years on from when, when he left. And, and at the time, you know, it was quite unusual, actually, because Daniel Levy hasn't often had that with, with his managers, you know, usually because they haven't lasted long enough for, for them to sort yeah. of develop that kind of relationship. But they used to go on holiday together. You know, Daniel Levy went to Argentina and stayed with his family. So, yeah, yeah they absolutely did have, I think, a bond that hasn't, been seen with any other manager under Enoch. And what a shame that Pochettino now works for the state of Qatar, which I, I always mention Qatar. Are you excited about the World Cup? I should say you write for the eye. Uh, so maybe you'll get a press pass. Maybe you'll get accreditation. You and Daniel Story can trot along to Qatar. Well, this is one of the things what people ask a lot, you know, because if you... I think a lot of journalists in the UK have worked on the issues with Qatar and people say well you know why would you go and cover it you know should people boycott it you know there's even been talk about should players boycott it and uh, I think it was Norway did yeah Norway and Germany to... and Denmark they've all been very outspoken yeah and they've worn t-shirts and sort of made gestures about it but ultimately they'll go you know they'll, they'll still go to the World Cup I don't think realistically anyone's going to boycott it but I suppose from the sort of media point of view if you if you boycott it you don't get the chance to report on what's happening there and you kind of then you leave a vacuum and then all that fills it is this kind of sanitized PR spiel from Qatar yeah whereas if journalists go there they can cover what they see and you know there's no need to you, you can give your your view on what's actually happening whereas otherwise you know there will still be it will be covered because it's the World Cup and you know you can't silence a World Cup you know it, it's it's there now um, and, and like you say, actually, it's, it's difficult because Qatar are so heavily involved in football. So this isn't going away. So it's it's definitely worth, I think, people going there to discuss the implications of this. Especially, you know, now you've got a, a Newcastle as well with Saudi Arabia. It's it's not a nice topic, but 
instead of you know say boycotting Newcastle, you you want to discuss it and discuss what's happening and kind of the implications of of that. Well, I was really upset when a Newcastle fan said to me, "Hey, we're rich. I don't care about politics." But your work mixes sport and politics. You do something with the OU, which my mum has a degree in uh, humanities at the OU. Uh, yeah. You lecture there. Uh, I'm a visiting fellow, so mm. yeah, yeah, just the odd the odd lecture here and there. Very good. Well, I'm not going to get you to lecture here because you've lectured me about Tottenham, comma, from the lane. That's what the Amazon listing is. On the cover of the book, it's Tottenham in big, bold letters. It's a Duncan Olner cover, so it looks brilliant. Uh, he's designed the cover to my book, which is about the Youth Cup, which comes out next year. So I will be talking to Steve Perryman about that and how Bill Nick gave youth a chance. The book is uh, 16.99 on pitch, although you can read it on Kindle for a tenner if you know how to get there. But... You you put the picture up of yourself. Can, am I allowed to repeat what you tweeted about what your family think of you? Oh, yeah, absolutely, yeah. <laughs> what was it? The reason that you haven't conceived is because in, you've conceived a book. 224 pages. It's a lovely hardback uh, with the new, new White Hart Lane, or as I call it, the Jimmy Greaves Stadium. They haven't taken sponsorship yet. No, um, yeah, I think there's an interesting thing about this because they uh, the idea was that by the time the stadium was open, they'd have they'd have found you know the naming rights. But the difficulty is with um, and with like like you say with Jimmy Greaves, like there's actually a lot of fans who would like there to be at least uh, a statue or you know uh, perhaps you know name the South Stand the Bill Nicholson Stand or something like that. But the difficulty is with this stadium, they're so determined that it's not only. The Tottenham Stadium. It's also an NFL stadium. Yeah, but, it's got you know yeah. boxing and music and and the, one of the things that that sells that so well. And a lot of Spurs fans don't like it. But if you go to an NFL game and you've just come in from the US or where you know wherever you've come, you wouldn't know that this stadium has anything to do with Tottenham Hotspur. They you know remove all the basically any any sign of Spurs, even to the extent where at the old White Hart Lane. Along the east stand, you had THFC mm-hmm. in in sort of white seats. So you know there was there was that. Whereas now there's nothing like that. So it's completely distinguishable from you know one day it's a, a football stadium, the next it's you know Jacksonville Jaguars or, or whoever. So I think that's perhaps a factor in why there's not been more kind of nods to the past. They're, they're all quite subtle, but there's nothing quite like you know at Wembley. There's the big Bobby Moore. And, you know, a lot of stadiums have, oh, you know, at United they've got, you know, Best and Law and Charlton. So a lot of Spurs fans would like there to be something like that, but there, yeah, there, there's yet to be. And I think it would be quite difficult because then you do lose this kind of transferability for other events. Hmm. But earlier on, we spoke about uh, the complaints and the protests by the fans that I imagine losing the identity, because it's very different, very difficult when you've got, Alan Sugar selling the club for forty-one million pounds, which was apparently the best thing that happened to him. Mm. Uh, and now, when Spurs turnover is, I don't know, five, six hundred million pounds, and they can afford to bring in Gareth Bale for whatever it is, fifteen million pound on loan, and to splash out these vast sums of money and the like, and and tie Harry Kane to this contract. I always say that the Spurs of today is not the Spurs of twenty years ago, and it's certainly not the Spurs of the early twentieth century when. What was it? Spurs were the only non-league club to win the FA Cup. They were, yeah, and they still are to, to this day, and you know, presumably will be, you know, forever. So mm-hmm. yeah, 1901 was the, the, the first time they they won a cup, and yeah, beat Sheffield United over two legs while still in the non-leagues. So yeah, it's a, it's a remarkable 
achievement, but yeah, one that I would imagine, you know, we'll never see again. And the year ended in one, as it did in 51, 61, 81 and 91. Um, and it went to 2021. And with Mourinho, I thought, hey, the year ends in one. And then they sacked Mourinho six days before the cup final. This Tottenham is business minded. Uh, whereas from what I've spoken to people about Bill Nick, that was football minded. In fact, I spoke to Brian Scovell, who worked on a book with Harry Harris uh, about Bill Nick. And he said that in the 70s, football was becoming more defensive rather, yeah, than, think, rather than thrilling. Yeah, and I suppose that kind of coincides with the end of you know the Bill Nick era. Because the, one of the funny things is people always think of the 60s as the Bill Nick era, but then he had this later... Um, success as well, um, you know, with the likes of Alan Mullery and Martin Chivers, so sort of early 70s, just before he, he resigned. But I suppose that football in general, it's not just at Spurs, you know, football more widely, since, you know, particularly since 1992, has become more business-minded. It isn't purely a game anymore. And and so I suppose that's why it's, such, it's, an, it's a fascinating time to have someone like Daniel Levy, who is so business focused and I suppose his argument is always that there's always there's enough examples of clubs who have not been business minded and you know have come unstuck majorly whereas for Spurs they haven't taken that step that they would have liked to but I suppose in the next 20 years we'll see if his plan works you know because ultimately it's about stability and so he says you know there's there's clubs that are you know throwing money away and they're having immediate success but we'll see uh, you know, further down the line. Yeah, he he must look at Blackburn. I spoke to some Blackburn fans this week. They know what happens when the sugar daddy's money stops and you tumble down. Do you foresee, and does Daniel Levy possibly foresee, given that he spent so much money on a stadium to one-up them over the rivals and then saw Chelsea cantering over? Uh, it's taken 30 minutes, but I'll have to bring them up. Is there a comparison with the red side of London? Because they've they've had stasis relatively for fifteen years now. Yeah, I, I think definitely because, I mean, people often say that as a, as a negative thing. People say, you know, why didn't Spurs learn the lessons of Arsenal, who built a fantastic new stadium, maybe lost some of their identity, and then Arsene Wenger was left to sort of pick up the pieces in terms of their lack of spending. Um, but I suppose one way of looking at it is it's almost. I would, I would even say Spurs and Arsenal both don't get enough credit for this because ultimately now, if you're to, to maintain this place in the, in the top six, seven, you know, wherever they are, there's no way of doing that which is attainable for clubs outside the top six. And that's why Newcastle fans are so excited about this uh, this takeover because ultimately that's the only way a club like Newcastle is going to have hopes of, say, coming in the top four in the next five years so Spurs and Arsenal have done things slightly more organically and you know unfortunately in the the sort of short to medium term it hasn't paid off in terms of football but ultimately there's there's no other way of doing it you know particularly for Spurs if they've got the the owners that they have they're not going to be able to compete with the likes of City and and now Newcastle and you know Chelsea and PSG. So I think they they've always had to look at things, and I think the stadium has been their way of competing. You know, and it might not pay off immediately, but something had to happen for them to to maintain that status. And I think that's the way they've looked at it. 
What happens if Newcastle offer Harry Kane the number nine shirt? <laughs> I mean, Newcastle are an odd one, aren't they? I suppose because at the moment, would you would you would players want to go there? You know, when they're nineteenth. You know, you don't know who the manager is going to be. It's a bit of a difficult one. I think they'll they'll invest quite well in January, and I don't think maybe with the kind of players that have been talked about. You know, the ridiculous like you know Mbappe and Haaland and people like that. But I think they'll buy some a couple of solid centre halves. Look at their centre mids as well. So I think I think the likes of Harry Kane are safe for now. What about Harry <laughs> Winks? Harry Winks would thrive in that team. Harry Winks would absolutely, and and Deli Ali is another one. So yeah. both Winks and were left out in midweek against Burnley. I know this is going out slightly later, but the Burnley game in the League Cup, um, and I think that was kind of the final nod that both of these players, who were such a you know doing so well a couple of years ago, you know Winks was in the England team, uh, keeping out people like Jordan Henderson, um, and De- you know Delhi, we've seen kind of his sort of decline over the last few years. And I think there's almost an acceptance for both of them that neither of them are fitting into this system at Spurs. Delhi, I don't know even where he's meant to fit anymore. You know, he's played in so many. He's been a false nine. He's been almost a defensive midfielder. He's been in so many positions that almost I think a lot of Spurs fans wouldn't be averse to both of them moving on, even if it was on loan, for, for their own sake as as much as what they're they're going to offer Spurs going forward. A shame. I've read Mike Calvin's book, Living on the Volcano, and he goes to visit Milton Keynes and just is, or may have been No Hunger in Paradise, whichever. It's about Deli Ali volleying a piece of chewing gum into the goal. This is a supremely talented player who, in the big game, certainly has flattered. Um, but it's a shame because Deli chose Tottenham over Liverpool because of what was sold to him, and he can't even get to play in this magnificent stadium, which, Cat Lucas, you've written about in Tottenham from the Lane, story of Spurs in N17. Did you speak to Ozzy, Ardiles? No, actually, no. Ozzy doesn't doesn't feature on on the subject of Delhi, though. I think yeah, it is a it's such a pity because he like you said he had a, other offers. I think when you sign a player from League One, I think this isn't normally what happens. You know, you don't normally if you sign a player from League One for five million, it's normally it takes such a long time for them to get the sort of status that Delhi got within sort of eighteen months at Spurs. Um, and he was the core of that that Pochettino team where you had Kane, Delhi, and and then sort of you know Vertonghen and, and Alderweireld and all, and all those elements. And it's it's a pity, but I think with Delhi, there's so many things that have happened. You know, even he had that thing a couple of years ago. You know, when there was the he was burgled mm-hmm. and it was quite quite severe. And and I think that's almost been forgotten about. You know, the impact that something like that would have. He's had you know. If you include Mason, you know, four managers in two years, he's, you know, fallen out of the England side. So it's been a, a really difficult time for him. And I think there's still, I think he's still fundamentally, he's the same player, but I think it wouldn't be, I wouldn't be averse to him moving elsewhere, even if on loan, you know, for a year to, you know, I mean, Lingard's a good example of, you know, how, how well Lingard did at West Ham back in the England side and also Ali will be excited about playing in another World Cup because that will be hanging hanging over and it's certainly hanging over your sports department I like to play who's on the plane I think Daniel also likes to play who's on the plane Uh, but you don't just cover football you cover boxing you spoke to Huey Fury recently and you're currently covering the T20 World Cup yes 
which I spoke to Gavin Scovell, Brian's son, and Gavin is in charge of the pictures. He's out in the Middle East doing the TV coverage. Um, so that's a hell of a job. But uh, we're now, we're talking on the 29th of October. So we're now in the Super 12 stage. Yes. Can you pick a winner? Bearing in mind that this will go out after the final. Oh, <laughs> yeah, that makes me slightly reluctant. Um, <laughs> I, from the early state, I'd say Pakistan Ooh, so far. That's good news for them. Yeah, England as well have you know looked fantastic. Actually, you know, I haven't, I haven't had a chance to see a lot of their batting because they've they've bowled so well. But um, India, I've been disappointed by. But um, again, I, I might uh, live to regret saying this if this goes out in a month. Long tournament. Remember what we were saying about Gareth Southgate after two games. The point is not to win well; it's just to win. Um, the Ashes yeah. are coming up in December. Are you covering them off tube? I will be, yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm not not out there, but um, yeah, looking forward to it. It's going to be. Um, I think now Ben Stokes is involved. It's it's a lot more uh, of an interesting series. I think before England didn't have a hope, but perhaps now, perhaps now they do. We'll see. I hope so. I hope for you because it's a lot of early mornings and late nights, and I don't know what time your deadline would be after. Yeah, what would it be? How do you have to file at stumps when you're covering the Ashes? It's a difficult one because it's so. Um, when, when do they start? I think they start kind of. No, it depends on where in Australia it is. Yeah, I think the first test starts at midnight, so I think we'll be, we will essentially be almost always a day behind. Um, but I mean, ultimately, luckily, the way that you cover cricket and, in fact, any sport, I think, is so different now because if you pick up a paper. Most people know what's happened in the football the night before. So I think, you know, and, and likewise with the cricket, people don't necessarily buy a paper to find out what's happened. Um, biggest talking points are not necessarily the scorecard. You know, there's always, particularly with, with Australia, and even now before the ball's been bowled, there's a lot of hostility. And it always starts way before the, the first ball's been bowled with the Ashes, I think. So you'll be covering that. And what a... A joy that there's an international break coming up in November as well. Perhaps we might want to pick up England, uh, which is a picture book with text from Daniel Story. Bearing in mind you work with him. Uh, and I've yes. also spoken to Nick Miller, who's a very, very old friend of Daniel's. What a great appointment for the newspaper to make him one of the chief football writers on one of the, what, 10, 11 sports titles. Great writer. Have you read his Gaza book? I have, yeah. No, I'm... A, I'm... Really delighted to be working with Daniel, actually, because like you say, I think he's so often kind of the voice of particularly, particularly for things like Qatar, he would be the go-to person that I would want to read anyway. Um, and to, to come out so regularly with such high-quality pieces is fantastic, actually. And yeah, he's, he's done fantastically well so far and yeah like you say his um i haven't obviously his england books just come out but yeah i've read his gaza book and that's a fascinating little snippet of a, a part of gaza's career that i suppose has been overlooked slightly mm. with lazio um and i suppose it's because he's such an england icon you know we, we're inclined to look at him uh, with england and, and spurs and, and even sort of you know rangers and newcastle but um yeah no it's, it's fascinating i'm not going to guess your age but would you watch football italia on sunday mornings with gaza featuring in the inserts you know, I think it's slightly before my time, but I think that, yeah, Football Italia, so I would be slightly post-Gaza. No, um, I am as well. Yeah, Football Italia was, um, 
It was great, actually. But I, I always used to think they were saying, like, go Lazio, you know, in the beginning. Yeah, so did I. <laughs> but, yeah, no, it was fantastic. I, mean, I, I think that's one thing that we're missing now. I guess BT Sport have done that slightly, but that kind of access to, to Italian football and even La Liga a little bit as well. So, yeah, they were the days. Oh, I don't know if I'd want to cover. Uh, well, La Liga and Serie A is fascinating this year because there are about six teams trying to win it. But Spain, why do... We vaunt Real and Barcelona, who are massively in debt. They could do with Daniel Levy and Enoch. Um, but Daniel Story wrote this amazing piece in The Eye, which is available for access. You don't need to log in or anything, like you do with The Independent. Same building, different paper. Um, the piece on Paris, the two clubs in Paris, that is brilliant journalism because it takes an issue and looks at it from another angle, which is that both Paris Saint-Germain and the other club in Paris, I can't remember the name, should have looked it up. They're changing the world, but in different ways. And I have zero care about Paris Saint-Germain, none. I don't know if you do, given that you're reporting about football and politics and it's essentially Qatar FC. I think that's one of the things that it's always important to to think of when you are talking about PSG. Because, for example, like the, the Messi signing... Uh, you know, the way that that was lauded as this, you know, exciting moment for PSG and for Ligue 1 as a whole. And it's, it's, it's another element of sports washing. Um, it's completely needless. You know, it's it makes the league more uncompetitive. There's no particular reason for Messi, from Messi's point of view either. I know, obviously, he would have maybe been happy to stay at Barcelona. But, yeah, I think that's the thing. And I think you get that with a lot of clubs where people say, oh, you know, why do you need to sort of, like, you know, Man City, you can't discuss Man City as a football club without discussing their owners, you know, and the implications of that. Because, you know, these these guys aren't here because they're lifelong Man City fans. And obviously they don't need to be, but I think it's... You know, it's, it's it's irresponsible apart from anything else to discuss clubs like that without looking at the wider wider issues. And we're talking a couple of weeks before this meeting with the Premier League. I mean, should we applaud Amnesty International and the Premier League meeting, or are the Premier League just going to go? Uh huh, uh huh, uh huh. Here's the door, because it's clear that the Premier League, founded on money, Irving Scholar and David Dean, two of the architects. The Premier League have no moral compass when they split off in with the 22 clubs, spearheaded by the big five as they were. I mean, this is just the new version. It's very interesting that 20, 30 years on, rather, Spurs are in a new stadium, Arsenal in a new stadium, uh, Man U and Liverpool have, have boosted theirs. But yeah, elite level football doesn't seem particularly brilliant. And yet you support one of these elite teams. I don't know if there's a question in there. It's more of a point. Yeah, I, I suppose that the difficulty is, and I suppose you know, for Newcastle or if this were to happen at, at Spurs, the question is what's the cut-off point? Because ultimately, you know, a football club is still about identity. So Tottenham are still about the identity of you know most you know how many Spurs fans you know have a lot of family history sporting Spurs, and, and it goes back years and years, and you know links to North London, and you know maybe Tottenham in particular. So I suppose where do you cut off that because of the owners, or because of um, you know you don't like the way the club is being run? Because I suppose none of the top six clubs would have many of their their kind of hardcore fan bases if that was the case. So, and I suppose there's an argument maybe that owners come and go, managers come and go, but you know the the club is what's 
tied to the area for the last 140 years in, in Spurs' case. So it's definitely a difficult one. Um, and I think, yeah, people do sort of have those questions to ask themselves in, in any of those cases. But the main thing is kind of keeping that core identity of the, of the club. Yeah, It almost doesn't compute how this entity, this shared fiction, is 140 years old. We're talking the week of the Grand Ole Opry, which is the mother church of country music. It's got its 5,000th Saturday night show. It, you can't do that in, like, grains of sand. But Tottenham, 140 years, has gone through all these great eras, mainly ending in one, including the push-and-run side. Did you write about how, post-war, Spurs were one of the big draws in certainly in London, if not the country. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that's one of the, the things to think of, you know, when people talk about Bill Nicholson, is that before that you had Arthur Rowe and a lot of the foundations of that team were built then. And, you know, those fantastic push and run sides. And that led to attracting better and better players. Uh, and in 1978, when the ban, the, or the was it a ban on foreigners? Or well, the FA lifted, the FA allowed clubs to sign foreigners and Spurs signed Villa and Ardiles which brought not just a continental flair, but a way of living and training. And, it, and I'm sure it would have delighted someone like Glenn Hoddle, whose book comes out in about 10 days. He's got a memoir. Yeah, I think it would, yeah, I'm looking forward to that one, actually. That era of Spurs, sort of early 80s under Birkenshaw was a... I think the thing with our dealers and Veer as well is it came, it's not long after Spurs had gone down and then come back up. So it was so unexpected. And like you say as well, it was so unusual to sign not only two players from Argentina but two World Cup winners and to have managed to get them in at Spurs was just absolutely kind of unprecedented at the time and then obviously that what they went on to do and be in the 1981 FA Cup final and, and our dealers and everything that he did um, it just it's, it's, an, it's an interesting time for Spurs because they had all that success and then Meanwhile, what's going on off the pitch? So when you had Irving Scholar and the kind of the financial mess that Spurs were left in, there's always been this kind of caveat, I guess, with with Tottenham. You know, even in the even in the good times, there's always sort of something going on elsewhere. Great to write about, though. And uh, Hunter Davis is celebrating 50 years of the Glory Game, which again, you, you and Daniel could not write this book now because there's too much intermediation. So I just wanted you to compare and contrast what football journalism was like in the era of Hunt, 71-72, uh, and football, I call it football criticism now. I don't call Dan a journalist, I call him a critic, because he's looking at every aspect of the game. But it's moved on quite substantially, certainly from the days of Dame Julie Welch. Yeah, I think that's one of the things that Daniel does so well, is because I think you can always look at football just, you know, in pure terms um, and even if you go into sort of the tactics and the mechanics but ultimately it's what makes it kind of that gives it that human side is what needs to be discussed so that's actually you know one of the, the things with with my book Tottenham from the Lane is discussing that how it you've got this billion pound entity but then it's on the, the Tottenham high road and you know there's a lot of statistics about how Tottenham has higher unemployment than you know most places in the country there's more homelessness than anywhere else in London and all these other elements but then you've also got this 
this football club and whether that kind of fits or if that's obviously in a way Spurs can be quite a force for good and they you know they do a lot of positive work in the community but also it kind of just doesn't quite sit rightly if, if that makes sense it is um, well look, 10 years ago there were these riots which spread to Edinburgh I was in Edinburgh at the time reading about it and just the the lawlessness of it all it was in direct contrast to what was going on at the football club where the signings were made for for millions and millions of pounds and in a way, it makes me want to support Orient. I mean, there will always be a, a place in my heart for Tottenham because I do remember Chris Perry, Stephen Carr, my lord, Stephen Carr. Um, that era, early 2000s, Chris Armstrong, Everson, and, and you could see why Levy and Lewis bought it because they saw that Sugar had kind of not run it into the ground. Don't sue me. It just, the heart was elsewhere. The heart was in TV shows. Um, so overall, those fans protesting... This weekend against Man U, this month, who have got this new stadium, they know that but for the grace of Daniel Levy, they would still be also runs. They could be Forest. So is this book not a historical corrective, but just a reminder that in the last 20 years, the Tottenham of 1882 has continued to this day and that it's the same entity, just with a lot, 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 lot more money? I think so, yeah. I think that's the the gist of it because it, it's so hard to sort of um, to to draw the link between the two, you know. Particularly because 1882, you know, this is a club that was founded by schoolboys and helped by a Sunday school teacher and you know local businessmen, and then to what they are now. So, I think from the sort of modern perspective, and you know, the Dan- the years under Daniel Levy, you, you can't ignore what's been done there for whether that's for better or worse and I think I think Daniel Levy will always be divisive I don't think he'll ever be universally welcomed at Spurs but equally I don't think he'll ever be universally hated because of the work that he's done and also not not just at the stadium but you know the work at Hotspur Way and with the academy and, and things like that so he's done you know no, no other other chairman in the last hundred years has done anything like him particularly mm-hmm. at Spurs I think what's funny about Spurs is if you look at when he took over in 2001, you know, White Hart Lane's gone and all the, the, there's, no, there's not a lot that links them to what they were like in 2001. But then, particularly this year and the last sort of 18 months when they've been in this demise, it's almost the feeling that they're back where they were. You know, they're, they're sliding towards kind of mid-table. Mid-table that's mediocrity. All. That's what I remember about Spurs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, I did have a question. Um, I will. I'll let you go because I, I gather you've got work to do or deadlines to hit. Uh, what are you covering this weekend? The last weekend of October. Uh, so I'll be at Tottenham. So Tottenham Man United. I'll be there uh, working on that. So it's a big one. It's the Nuno uh, Ole Derby. So maybe a job on the line. We'll see. <laughs> and what are you doing? Are you match report and getting quotes, or are you colour? Uh, yeah, so a bit bit of everything. I think it, it depends how it pans out. But yes, uh, it, it partly depends on, on the result because I suppose it has so much bearing, for, particularly for United and for Ole. Um, and Spurs almost feels like a bit of a subplot. But um, hmm. yeah, we'll be, we'll be uh, doing a report and then speaking to them, hopefully. And I think, yeah, Nuno is... I think Nuno has the easier job because I think there's always hysteria um, and particularly with Ole so hopefully Nuno's kind of gone under the radar a little bit which might take the pressure off 
Indeed, and this is the first weekend that fans can go to the game reading Tottenham from the Lane, the story of Spurs in N17, 1699 hardback, published by Pitch. You get your football library card, because we are in the football library. Uh, I wanted to know two things. Which Tottenham figure you want on the card, and if you had an absolute favourite game that you watched at the Lane, would it involve Ajax or Man City? The new stadium definitely... The, the City one was probably the best atmosphere, the, the Champions League against City. Um, to, in fairness, this year, yeah, the, the, the one first day of the season this year, again, that against City, we, we've got a habit of uh, beating City 1-0, and no one knows how or why, um, but it seems to, <laughs> to, to keep happening. Um, so, yeah, the new... I think that's one of the things, isn't it, with a new stadium? There's always... It's difficult to kind of start, you know have new memories because ultimately all the best the best days are still at White Hart Lane so hopefully yeah there'll be some more to come mm-hmm. and uh, who do you want on your library card well that's a difficult one um, yeah well you've got Gazza and Greaves on the front of your book maybe you can have both of them yeah go on do me Greavesy excellent and then the final final question I'm really pleased with that. And by the way if you're going to Qatar next year please consult Johnny Northcroft's book and Barney Roney's book on their accounts at Russia. It's just logistics. It's really tedious logistics. You're just going from place to place. Qatar is easier because it's smaller than Russia. Um, mm. But I've had Johnny in, not Barney just yet. If you were to remove one of these two phrases from any social media forever, but it can only be one, would it be hashtag Spursy or Dr. Tottenham? Oh, I think Dr. Tottenham... I think that one needs to go. I didn't even know it existed until the other day, but it's complete. You can make it Doctor anything. Doctor Arsenal, Doctor Watford. Yeah, Doctor Tottenham definitely has a history behind it. It's, um, yeah, for anyone who doesn't know, it's basically so United, for example, will have lost four games in a row or whatever it is, and then they'll play Spurs and they'll look like prime Barcelona. So (laughs) Spurs have a bit of a habit of uh, of that happening. So hence, Doctor Tottenham have kind of been the cure of the ills of many teams over the years. Correct. So, oh, but then Spurs is just as bad as well. Well, at I least Spurs, Spurs you've had the game. Yeah, at least that's happened, whereas Dr. Tottenham... But I think Spurs, it's always a bit lazy, you know? It's always like there's this analysis... It's like the whole like whole bottle jobs, you know, but there's no analysis behind it. It's just scoreboard of, punditry. My new favourite yeah. phrase, scoreboard punditry, which you will not um, exaggerate in because you've got this history of, what, 20 years of watching Spurs? 25? Yeah, 25, um, yeah. You've seen the best years of Tottenham's lives. And uh, do you go to all the European games as well? I do, yeah. So I've only done a few of the aways, but yeah, I do all the all the homes and then as many aways as, as I can. How good is this kid Scarlett? Does he have movement, intelligence? I think, yeah, he he's an intelligent player. I think the difficulty is you can tell how young he is physically. Um, and there's been a couple of games, even in you know in the Conference League, where he's just kind of not got into the game, and that's not. I don't think that's um, anything to do with him. It's just a, a purely he's, I think, 17, possibly 18 now, um, and you can tell like the golf physically of of when he he's playing against you know 25 year old men. I think he'll come good. I think they they were discussing the other day whether he'll stay on or perhaps go on loan, um, which I think might do him good. 
Yeah. But yeah, there's a lot to be excited about actually in in the academy, and and particularly you know like uh, Mark Ande came on the other day as well. So there's uh, Niall John. So they've been getting the odd the odd, odd opportunity here and there. So hopefully, hopefully lots more to come. And uh, by the time this goes out on November 26th, quite favourable. Burnley away, Brentford at home, Norwich at home, and you've just had Leeds at home as well. Uh, but mm. as we speak. Uh, North London is preparing for an influx of Man United fans and indeed the players. Could Ollie lose his job at Spurs? Find out at iNews. iNews.co.uk? iNews.co.uk, yeah. Brilliant. Thank you, Kat. Have a good rest Thank of the year. You.